When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Introducing the new Starbucks Pistachio Cream Cold Brew. Silky Pistachio Cream Cold Foam tops our bold, smooth, cold brew for a delicious twist on a favorite winter flavor. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. The Premier League soccer season is heating up. Turn to Betting Weekly English Premier League on the Bet Rivers Network for the best bets and analysis for this week's features. Subscribe to Betting Weekly Premier League today wherever you get your podcast. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love Betting Weekly Game Bet Match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. Welcome to Let It Roll, a podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Brooks Long to continue their David Ritz book club with a discussion of Ritz's biography of Aretha Franklin, Respect, and the autobiography he wrote with Aretha, From These Roots. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again, I'm joined by Brooks Long, and we're continuing our discussion that we call the David Ritz Book Club. Today, we're doing a twofer, and we've got, again, like we did with Marvin Gaye, we've got Aretha from These Roots by Aretha Franklin and David Ritz, as well as the biography Ritz wrote by himself called The Life of Aretha Franklin, Respect. Brooks, welcome back. Glad to be here. This is, uh, this will be fun. (laughs) Yeah, it should be. This is an interesting one, because... Like many people, David Ritz had a strained relationship with Aretha Franklin to say, I don't know, I wouldn't say the least. It's not like they had a feud or anything. They succeeded in in putting out the book together. But Ritz felt that the story hadn't been told, that Aretha just left too much out and did a lot of what he called idealization of her various, of her personal life. And um, he wanted to tell the story as he understood it. And since he had seems like about 25 or 30 years of research on this topic from talking to her siblings, uh, Cecil, Carolyn, Irma, Vaughn, uh, talking to her close friends and associates over decades and knowing her, spending four years working on, on the autobiography with her. 
I think he had a pretty good case that he was qualified to try to write what he called a companion piece to the original autobiography. Yeah. Oh, oh no doubt. Um, uh, Ritz is, is, is the guy for this, as he seems to be for, for the other two that, that we've talked about, uh, Brother Ray for Ray Charles and, uh, oh, goodness, what's the... Uh, what's the Marvin Gaye title? Um, Divided Soul. Divided Soul. And Divided Soul. Yeah, he's, he's definitely the, the guy for Aretha Franklin. Sounds like uh, uh, he was cultivating that relationship for a long time and then also cultivated relationships with all the people in her circle uh, for a long time, including um, uh, Marvin Gaye and Ray Charles and all the people in their circles. Um, this uh, respect is so, so good. And I'm only, you know, uh, we're, we're just beginning to, to dive into Ritz here. And I've read maybe four or five of his books, actually starting when I was a kid with the one that he wrote with Sinbad, which I think is classic. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, but as as I'm going through this, I'm like, did 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 he design this to be his magnum opus or something? Because it's really really good, um, and it, it it you you can read respect and you can have a really really good idea of the world and the culture of of soul music. Um, uh, in and out of rhythm and blues and jazz and certainly gospel. Um, but I would say, I, so I, so that's, this is my second time reading respect and I, and I enjoyed it more the second time because I read from these roots. And I just want to say that, uh, uh, you know, Irma, her sister, said that when Aretha looks in the mirror, she sees a completely different person from everybody else, and that's where respect comes from. And so I get that, and at the same time, uh, reading from these roots in a proper context is is a really, really cool read. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and I highly recommend it. I think uh, it isn't uh, just in also ran to respect. No, I think you have to read from these roots too, to really get a sense of who she is. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I had not read, uh, from these roots before I'd read, read respect a couple times and it was only preparing for the show that I read, uh, Aretha's autobiography. And while it's true, the things Ritz says and the things that her closest friends and associates said about her, I mean, she's clearly covering things up. She's skipping over things. She's compressing details. Her description of her first husband are particularly yeah. abbreviated. Um, but at the same time, it gets across a real sense of her as a person and as a lovely person, as a warm person, as a cook, as a music fan, as a parent, as a gardener. And it was just nice to know and to get that yeah. feel because it's clear, you know, like the first thing in respect is Ritz trying to explain to people who don't know how big a deal her father, C.L. Franklin, Reverend C.L. Franklin was. That this guy is, quote, a towering figure in the history of black America. So even if there had never been an Aretha Franklin, this family is in the history books. Her father Absolutely. sold 
hundreds of thousands of records of his sermons. He organized a march on Detroit uh, that got 200,000 people. That was a dry run for the March on Washington, working with Martin Luther King. He was one of Martin Luther King's key allies in the civil rights movement. I mean, absolutely a towering figure and a towering figure in music. His, his sermons and his rhyming cadence that stuff trickles down through gospel, through R&B, through soul, through hip hop. I mean, this guy is a big, big force in American history. Absolutely, yeah. He was he was known as uh, like sort of the the blues preacher. He he was the one that was you know uh, cool with with uh, all these things that were uh, and all these people that were coming through the secular side of black music, uh, which is, was just not the case for, for every preacher coming through. And that really helped him, but he was, you know, he also had his rhetorical genius. Uh, it said that he had a mind that never stopped working. Um, he's just a, just a brilliant man. And on top of that, he, uh, he had a performance style that was, yeah, as you say, incredibly, um, incredibly influential. So the Franklins, all of them are really like, uh, you know, they're, they're royalty. Um, yes. Yes. They're, they're not coming from, uh, the same sort of background as Ray Charles or, or Marvin Gaye. Um, it, it, you know, their, their lives were, were, you know, a little hard, harder than that. Um, uh, Aretha Franklin, you know, she became the queen of soul. She grew up the princess of, of, you know, of the black church. Absolutely. And let's hear a little bit. This is 14-year-old Aretha performing with her father, CL. She toured with him starting when she was 11 or 12 and uh, was a big part of his touring acts, dropped out of school to perform with, the, with him. And this is a young Aretha tackling When the Blood Runs Warm, which was a song made famous by Clara Ward. And we'll talk about Clara Ward and her relationship with Aretha's father after this. And that was the young Aretha Franklin, the very young, the 14-year-old Aretha Franklin doing When the Blood Runs Warm, which was a key song of Clara Ward, one of the great gospel singers of the 20th century, who was not just a mentor to Aretha Franklin, but also a very, very, very close friend of her father, probably a lover, although Aretha denies that and insists they were just close friends. And that's where you get into... The problematic side, it's not easy to be the child of the king. Like C.L. Franklin yeah. was a charismatic workaholic, 
who had women throwing themselves at him nonstop. And, and he separated uh, from Aretha's mother and, and she went to Buffalo and then passed away of a heart attack when Aretha was very young. And that, you know, I, I can't remember who it was, and maybe it was Claire Ward, but one of the people that knew Aretha described her as a woman who needed a mother more than anybody I've ever met. And there's this yeah. bottomless hunger in Aretha, and it really does seem like she could tap into her emotional her emotions only when she performed. And it's, you know, your frustrations and the frustrations people had dealing with her come from this, this, she's living in this artistic world. She's an artist. She's creating her own world and she really only comes alive when she's singing. Yeah. It's, um, uh, there's, there's that, that aspect of people who are considered geniuses that um, that's just that it comes sort of out of necessity. The only way you can get out the feelings that you have inside is by getting up on stage in front of thousands of people and and you know, being creative in, in that way. Um, there's just a, a drive in her that uh, when you when you find out about her life and and you find out, uh, particularly in respect about how much her mom's uh, her mom's early death affected her, and and how much the you know subsequent possible mothers going in and out of the house uh, affected her. Uh, it starts to make sense what you're hearing in her voice. The, the brilliance uh, comes from a lot of pain. Absolutely. And and she was one of all of her siblings were talented. Her sister Irma, you know, had the hit or had a not as big a hit as Janis Joplin had, but she did Peace of My Heart, you know, had a totally respectable career as a soul singer. Carolyn uh, was a songwriter, wrote several of Aretha's hits, including Angel, which was, you know, very nearly a million seller. And so Aretha had not only that emotional emotional issues or whatever it was, that emotional drive, that need that her sisters probably didn't have to the same degree. But she also was notably a musical prodigy, even in a very talented family. She stuck out, like Smokey Robinson, who was best friends with her brother Cecil growing up, described sitting around with Cecil listening to Sarah Vaughn records and the young Aretha coming in the room and immediately being able to mimic the really complicated riffs that Sarah Vaughn is doing. Or, you know, this is the kind of household where Art Tatum might just show up and play the piano at a party one night. Yeah. And, you know, Aretha, very, very young, hears this incredible genius and the next day is at the piano playing some of his riffs. I mean, it's just um, it's amazing that there are people like this in the world. I'm just grateful to have been to have shared the planet with somebody like Aretha Franklin and grateful for all the music she gave us. You know, I mean, just this incredible talent, but it came at a high cost. And, you know, she had two children in her teens. And I want to get I want to squash this early. There there have been ugly rumors going back yeah. 40, 50 years started by – I don't know that they were started, but they were repeated by some of her biggest allies and proponents in the music business, John Hammond and Jerry Wexler, that C.L. Franklin was the father of her children. And both Ritz and C.L. Franklin's biographer absolutely say there's no evidence to this. Her siblings – 
absolutely denied that. And they were very open and forthcoming, Ritz felt. And so I just want to squash that completely, that that is just a vicious canard. And there's plenty of trouble and dirt here. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, C.L. Franklin did impregnate young girls. He did have many yeah. affairs, you know, and Aretha was, you know, having children at this very young age. I mean, there, there were obviously flawed people, but not that particular flaw. And that's another thing. This gospel scene at the time, Ritz quotes Billy Preston on this. And, you know, it's clear if you read the biographies of Sam Cooke by Peter Goralnik or others, this was a wild off the chain scene. I mean, these, <laughs> these people were touring and praising the Lord, you know, on Sunday morning and then just going hog wild uh, in those in those boarding houses at night. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, boy, it's um, it, it's it's something I don't want to I don't want to, you know, oversell it. But, you know, there are people in the book that, that sell it well enough. Yeah. Uh, like Billy Preston and uh, and uh, Ray Charles, they both say, like, you know, there, there's stuff going on uh, that would just shock people in the secular scene. Um, and, you know, uh, word on the street is uh, it hasn't changed that much today. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I would just, all I would say is, you know, uh, I don't go to church very much anymore, but I, I, I can tell you that the things that are going on on the street are some of the same things that are going on in the church. Uh, the difference is that the people, people in the church, you know, have, have a, a certain method of, of you know, trying to uh, address some of those issues. And sometimes it can be a safe place to, you know, to do those things kind of in a, you know, don't ask, don't tell kind of way. <laughs> yeah, on the down low is a, a great description for it. And it was a very accepting scene for homosexuals, one of the few places in the black community that people like Billy Preston uh, or Little Richard could, you know, find some acceptance and some space to live their own lives and, and chase their joys. You know, and Aretha was definitely doing that. And, you know, she talks about Sam Cooke, who she knew personally and flirted with possibly had an affair with him. I mean, it seems like, you know, every woman in his range had an affair with Sam Cooke, but... Uh, it's highly possible. <laughs> yeah, highly possible. Fun to speculate about. But then then as she leaves her teens, or, or doesn't even leave her teens, but as she becomes an adult, she breaks with her father in a dramatic fashion, and she finds another man to do that. And the man she picks couldn't be further from her father. She's we're talking about Ted White, who, interestingly, she refers to throughout her autobiography strictly as White. She never calls him Ted, that I recall, calls him White <laughs> many times. And, you know, they got Harvey Fuqua from, Fuqua from the Moonglows and a Motown producer and Marvin Gaye's mentor. And he's just saying, look, the guy was a straight up pimp. And anybody who couldn't see and didn't know that he was a pimp, like an absolute PIMP pimp, was blind, deaf, and stupid. Like, this guy was a pimp. And Edda James had a great quote in there that, yeah, you know, this is pre-women's lib, and we were looking for men to carry us where we wanted to go. And, you know, I'm sure Ted White used Aretha, but Aretha used Ted White to break from her father and start her career in secular music. And they signed with the biggest, most powerful record company in America, Columbia. They pass over Motown, which is just starting around this time. 
they pass over chess, which is in Chicago, you know, where Etta James is having enormous success and go to Columbia and John Hammond, you know, adds Aretha to his many quills. You know, this is the guy who discovered Count Basie, Billie Holiday, goes on to discover Bruce Springsteen and Stevie Ray Vaughan. And Aretha is yet another feather in his cap. Yeah. I mean, it just, it makes sense for the template that, uh, was there when when she was going into that secular field? Uh, she was she's so talented, and yes, she has this incredibly strong gospel background. But as you're saying, like people like Art Tatum and Duke Ellington, and you know Ella Fitzgerald and Dinah Washington are all coming to their house in Detroit. Uh, to visit. And she's, you know, she's this little kid entertaining them. So she's soaking up all this stuff. And uh, that versatility is not really going to be on display at Motown or or chess, most likely. It's going to be on display at a place like uh, Columbia. And so at the time, she would seem to fit uh, this you know, Sarah Vaughn mold, Nancy Wilson. Uh, they don't really talk about her too much, but uh, Nina Simone is, you know, yep. in the same ilk around the same time with the same vibe. Uh, these female uh, jazz pop singers, um, that, that, was, that was sort of the template. And of course, uh, Dinah Washington, uh, that... That was the template, and it was just very obvious that she's broader than rhythm and blues. She's uh, broader than blues music. She has to be at a record company where she's going to be doing uh, jazz stuff and and playing in jazz clubs, which, you know, uh, has a, a more intellectual vibe. Uh, a wider variety of music, but uh, she is the one that eventually created a different template for rhythm and blues singers that just didn't exist before before she did. So Columbia thinks that they have a Nina Simone-like person, uh, but I mean, anybody who's heard Aretha Franklin knows that they're they're dealing with one of the most talented, you know, English singers, English speaking singers in the planet. Yeah, ever. And let's go ahead and hear a taste of her, some of the stuff she recorded at Columbia. This is Skylark, one of those just beautiful jazz tunes she did. Have you anything to say? Won't you tell me where my love can be? Is there a meadow in the mist where someone's waiting to be kissed? And that was Aretha Franklin doing Skylark for Columbia Records, and you know. Prepare for the show, I dived into that Columbia discography deeper than I ever had before. And it's so easy with Aretha. You know, you want to just 
glom onto the Atlantic years when she was the queen of soul. And yeah. that's what got her in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's what sold millions of records. That's the stuff that just is obviously great, astonishingly great. And there's, you know, many albums. It's 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 a real rich discography just to to absorb her Atlantic years. And the Columbia years... There are a ton of great recordings in there, a, a wide variety of stuff, jazz numbers, R&B numbers. It's really strong, yeah. and you can see she's got the same sort of issue that Ray Charles or Marvin Gaye had when they're starting out, because these are such incredibly talented people. They have every option open to them. They can do anything, and Aretha especially was just obviously jaw-droppingly talented, and it's just incredible. And, and, you know, she's working with some of the best jazz musicians, veteran pop producers. And, you know, and, and it's not just John Hammond who does her early stuff and who's, you know, famous as a talent scout. And then the knock on him is he's kind of an academic and he never was the great producer that some of his contemporaries were, you know, he could find the talent, but didn't necessarily know how to bring him to the full flower. But, you know, he worked with people like Bobby Scott and Clyde Otis, you know, teams that have worked with Donna Washington and others that had had hits and had had success. But the thing I think coming from our perspective in 2021 it's hard to see what things were like in 1960. And even though we'd had rock and roll, we'd had Elvis, we'd had Ray Charles, this backlash had come and it seemed like the sort of Frank Sinatra, Dinah Washington side of things had won. I mean, people like Bobby Darren had gone pop. The Frankie Avalon wave had, had washed away the Jerry Lee Lewis's of the world. And people like Nancy Wilson were coming up as brand new artists and making it as pop stars from a pure jazz background. And, and that's why, you know, if you, if you go through Motown records and you're like, why, why is Barry Gordy having the Supremes do Rogers, an album of Rogers and Hart songs? <laughs> like, you know, what the heck is going on? And it's because they wanted that all around artist career path that Ray Charles had blazed and perfected. And, you know, that was the safe harbor. Like you could do pop and R and B hits and have a, have a nice little career. But if you wanted a lifetime career, you needed to be able to play the Copacabana and the supper clubs in Vegas and make it get over with the, the keepers of the sort of American arts world, which accepted jazz, but did not accept R and B and pop in the same way at this time. So that's what they were trying to do. But unfortunately things had kind of moved on from that world and Aretha never quite clicked. And also she's making some very eccentric choices. Like she and her father had this love of Al Jolson and, oh, yeah. <laughs> and you know, Al Jolson's just one of those people, like he's clearly a great performer. I mean, any account of people at that time, and I'm not just talking about, you know, squares. I mean, people like Duke Ellington respected Al Jolson as as a great performer. Louis Armstrong, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, these, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis acknowledged Al Jolson as a great entertainer. It's just hard to see. And in 1960, doing a version of, you know, Rock by Your Baby with a Dixie Melody on American Bandstand was just, <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> wow. That, that is one of those things. You know, Yes, that that it blows my mind, but it also blows my mind that you know there are still uh, ice cream trucks that are that are playing minstrel melodies right now. Um, um, so it, yeah, she her and throughout her career, her selection of material has always felt 
or, or seems strange to a lot of people, including me. Um, but, you know, it is a part of the total package of Aretha Franklin. You're just, you're not going to get uh, respect with without a few That's Entertainments and, you know, the Al Jolson tunes. <laughs> uh, and I, I think she, she uh, I, I don't know if she keeps doing Al Jolson. I, I don't think she does. I think she actually rest- did drop that bomb on stage for many years like would would still bust that out um (laughs) yeah and it's not a racist song there's nothing inherently you know and and jolson by the time jolson's doing blackface it's it it was so far removed from the original context it's just sort of an american performing tradition and you know he's a jewish immigrant trying to be an american so that's how he did it and he was seen as an ally of the black community at the time you know and 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 was respected and even beloved by people like cl franklin i'm not gonna try to go back in time and tell cl franklin you were wrong about this you know but it was just poorly timed though in the 1960s on american bandstand that was not gonna get you over things were things yeah things were were just changing a lot and i think the world that we live in now is a world that is uh sort of created by rock and roll and soul music and created by uh, some of the things that people like Aretha Franklin did. They didn't live in that world. They created that world from another world. Yeah. So so we're we're seeing things uh yeah in, in a very, very, very different light. I'm remembering that Nat King Cole, who's, you know, a, another person that she might have wanted to emulate career wise, uh said um uh, Mr. Cold is not rock and roll, you know. So it wasn't just it wasn't just you know, oh, you know, white people who were you know thought that this was threatening to uh, the structure of society. No, you know, there were lots of of black folks that just did not think that uh, rock and roll was particularly dignified, and that that uh, he was a rhythm and blues innovator, but he he moved away from that. Um, and, uh, it was desirable to move away from that into this, uh, more mainstream area of what was considered mainstream at the time, Frank Sinatra and, uh, you know, Rosemary Clooney and, and stuff like that. Um, that was what was considered classy for everybody. Um, yeah. we just did not live in a world where you could you could take uh, rock and roll as as seriously as jazz was just starting to be taken seriously, and as you know, classical music and opera and things like that. Uh, it, it was just a different scene. Absolutely, and let's take a quick sponsor break and come back and talk about some of the things that changed the scene and forced Aretha to adapt. And so we were talking about Aretha Franklin's goal of positioning herself as an all-around entertainer and following people like Nina Simone and Nancy Wilson, who had this jazz pop crossover success that she never was able to match at Columbia. And what happened in 1964 was the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the British Invasion came over and consolidated the victory of Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry and Little Richard. Uh, who made this enormous splash in the 50s, but then weren't able to hold what they had gained, whereas the Beatles were so overwhelmingly successful. And, you know, Aretha did a beautiful tribute album to Dinah Washington in in the spring of 1964. And again, 
could not have been more ill-timed. But by 1965-66, it's clear she's not going to become the star she wants to be. And she knows how talented she is. She knows she's the queen, but she hasn't proven it. You know, She's made plenty of good records, and she's respected. She's toured with Sam Cooke and Jackie Wilson, and, and people respect her, but she has not had that hit success. And this is a woman who can't sleep at night because Barbara Streisand is, you know, bigger than her. <laughs> and, you know, like, she's <laughs> she's absolutely ambitious and comparing herself to the biggest stars on the planet. And after the Beatles' success and then after the Motown's enormous success— and you know she does things like cover my guy by which Mary Wells did the Smokey Robinson tune and does it incredibly well. I mean it's easy to see. Wow, if she had been at Motown, she would have done a lot of things. But and she would have changed everything. Just the gravitational force of Aretha Franklin being in that small pond. But like she said in her book, they wanted to control their artists. I wasn't going to be. Nobody was going to be controlling me. So you know Motown yep. wasn't the right fit for her. So she signs with Atlantic, who's this storied R&B label, you know, this is where Ruth Brown, um, this is where Ray Charles, this this is where uh, Big Joe Turner, I mean, this is one of the absolute foundational labels of rhythm and blues. Teams up with Jerry Wexler, who's one of the great producers at Atlantic, signs the deal. She and Ted White go. Jerry Wexler takes him to Muscle Shoals. He originally tries to place him at Stax. Jim Stewart at Stax, for whatever reason, uh, didn't think it was a good fit. And then Jerry Wexler screws over Stax and has this falling out. Takes her to Muscle Shoals, which is where Percy Sledge had recorded some hits, Arthur Alexander. And there's this team. It's actually Rick Hall at Fame Studios' second team of studio musicians that later became known as the Swampers. Roger Hawkins on drums, Jimmy Johnson on guitar, David Hood, uh, and Ted Cogwell on bass, Spooner Oldham on keyboards, uh, Chips Moman, who's around in Memphis all the time but pops down to Muscle Shoals, plays – and they do this session. They they cut um, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Loved You, which is a song that Ted White had brought in. Like reading about this, it's commonly told that you know Aretha Franklin – gets free of Columbia, signs with Jerry Wexler, and he puts her on the right path. But it's very clear from reading Ritz's respect that she'd already figured out what she wanted to do, that yeah. she had matured as an artist. She was already doing respect, and she had remade respect. She totally rebuilt that song from the ground up, much as the way Otis Redding, its author, had rebuilt Satisfaction and Day Tripper. You know, I mean, she's tackling big stuff. I mean, if you're going to go up against Otis Redding and then just tear his song apart and rebuild it, you know, <laughs> I mean, that that's balls, you know, that's just confidence. And it's obviously genius. It's one of the great hits of the 20th century. And, but Ted White and Rick Hall get in a fist fight and, and, you know, they record one track and the whole thing blows up. Aretha and Ted fly, you know, leave the motel separately, but both end up back in New York. Jerry Wexler has to bring parts of the Swampers to New York to start over. And they bring in King Curtis and some of the New York session greats. And, and that's where they finish those first, you know, first classic Aretha on Atlantic album. And, you know, I was, I was watching the Ken Burns country music documentary and, and been working on a series on that. And Rana Giddens of uh, the Carolina chocolate drops had a great expression where, uh, 
the magic of American music, the reason American music take, has taken over the world, she says, it's because you get these one plus one equals 100 situations where you take black musicians and white musicians and put them together, and it's a multiplication. It's not an addition. It's a multiplication. And getting these white boys from Alabama – uh, in the studio with Aretha Franklin. It's so crazy to me, and I love it, that some of the funkiest rhythm section on earth in 1967 were these just absolute crackers from the sticks in Alabama. It's just a yeah. beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, they they definitely could play, and you know, there were there were uh, there there's certainly a interracial dynamic going on at Stax and oh, yeah. at uh, and at, at Motown, and I For even sure. just uh, found out that Daryl Hall used to play on a lot of those Philly International records. But uh, yep. but uh, but yeah, you're in those situations. You're talking about some white people around the sea of black people. Uh, but in this situation, yeah, uh, yeah, it, it's and they're they're completely white, but but uh, they've you know absorbed a lot of groove. And one one thing uh, other than just their ethnicity is that these guys are not guys that are are playing charts. They're they're not like jazz musicians that are coming in from, you know, a jazz session where they're playing a bunch of heads from fake books and stuff like that. No, uh, the, these are, this is more rock and roll. These are guys who hang out and they jam all day long. And so Aretha Franklin is coming from a situation at Columbia where she's being put with all these different uh, jazz musicians and nothing against uh, jazz musicians, but uh, but they're they're coming in from a uh, it's an older uh, generation. It's, it's an a- it's an older generation. It's a different way of interacting with musicians where like there's all kinds of pickup gigs that are happening all the time. And if you just you know read this chart, you know you'll be able to get with them good and and everything will work out. In rock and roll, a band hangs out in the garage for for months and really gets to gel together. And um, and that's what was going on with you know Booker T and the MGs. That's what was going on with the Funk Brothers. And that's what was going on at uh, Fame Studios uh, as well. And so Aretha gets to be in that situation. And I think I love a lot of those Columbia records. They're really good, particularly Unforgettable, the Dinah Washington one. Yeah. Um, but it does sound like the musicians are backing her up versus really playing with her and, you know, pushing. Uh, they, they, you know, there's, there's a sense with these Atlantic uh, records that everybody involved is pushing each other. Yeah. Um, and I think that maybe that's uh, something that's going on between the musicians. Also, Jerry Wexler uh, is going for that raw, more lived-in performance style, and I can't stress enough how important Tom Dowd is, uh, oh, yeah. the the engineer. Um, it, it 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 it's kind of hard to imagine uh, just how different his his records sounded, how more alive they sounded than than. Uh, previous previous productions because of his engineering the guy was literally a nuclear physicist yeah and and uh, 
And uh, he just brought a really clean sound, which let them capture that dirty, dirty funk that King Curtis and the Swampers are bringing. And, and Aretha with her sister singing backup. I mean, and, you know, in the Muscle Shoals documentary, which I absolutely highly recommend, one of them, I think it's Roger Hawkins, describes, you know, working with Aretha. And he's just like, that girl had an aura. And, yeah. they, and they knew she was a queen. And and they were realizing how great they were. I mean, can you imagine just being this yokel kid from Alabama and you and get flown to New York City and you're playing with King Curtis and Aretha Franklin? I mean, and you're hanging, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you might not know any better but to hang, you know? You're, you're, yeah. You don't know, you know, what the hell is going on. Uh, so you don't know to pull back. You don't know to... I, I don't know. There's just a magic that's going on. There's a bunch of things happening at the same time. And you know, we should get back to the fact, yeah, there's all these other great people, but Aretha is figuring it out. She's matured and become the queen. And like, you can get lost in the very good Columbia recordings. There's so many good, good songs. Yeah. But when you switch back to the Atlantic records, the difference between good and great is immeasurable. It's that inductive gap. I mean, it's an, you know, it's just this enormous gulf that separates the good and the great. And when you really dive into one of her great albums, you're like, why was she wasting her time? <laughs> you know, yeah. And but, she uh, really dug into to rhythm and blues at this point. She was she yeah. was all in. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. She realized this was the path. And let's hear let's hear one more. This is. This is a, a version of uh, Paul Simon's Bridge Over Troubled Water. This is from Live at the Fillmore 1971 with King Curtis leading her band. He eventually becomes her, her musical director and band leader and brings a whole new great rhythm section with uh, Cornell Dupree on guitar, Bernard Purdy on drums, Jerry Jimmett bass, Billy Preston of uh, Beatles fame on organ. And uh, they play Live at the Fillmore West in front of the big hippie crowd and go over great. This is Aretha's deconstruction and rebuilding of Paul Simon's Bridge Over Troubled Water. And that's Aretha Franklin just showing Art Garfunkel no respect <laughs> and, and, and taking over. I mean, I love Art Garfunkel's version of that song, but man, you know, she just rips it apart. And and I want to get into the King Curtis thing because King Curtis is this oh, towering figure yeah. of R&B, played you know, saxophone on the coasters and, and tons of records and, and was one of the kings of the New York session scene. And then he becomes Aretha Franklin's right-hand man. And there's this theme of her losing men in her life to violence. She was so close yeah. to Sam Cooke. He's taken away in 1964. Her father is shot and put into a coma that he never recovers from in the late 70s. And King Curtis is killed in just this ridiculous incident, trying to sweep some junkies off his porch and is murdered. Um, absolutely tragic and devastating. And, and that had to have really hit Aretha and... Um, you know, it's just an incalculable loss to everyone. And all I can say is, man, I'm grateful that he lived and that he recorded this music and that he teamed up with Aretha. I mean, I, I don't want to live in a world where I'm bad that John Lennon got killed at age 40. I'm glad I lived in a world where we had John Lennon and the Beatles. I'm glad we had King Curtis. Thank you. And um, Absolutely. Yeah, you know, and, and, yeah. 
Yeah, so I, I don't know how to get out of that particular riff, but but well, I I I I feel you on that. I mean that that he was just brilliant and such a great loss. I actually found out that he went to high school with Ornate Coleman. You couldn't picture two more different saxophone players. Oh, absolutely. But, but um, yeah, he he was an absolute giant and became her uh, musical director for some of her best stuff. It does seem like loss really fuels her. Lady's Soul, which is definitely, I don't know if I have an absolute favorite Aretha Franklin album, but one of them is definitely Lady's Soul. That's a good and, one. And Wexler says that the feeling that she had during those sessions might be in reaction to the death of Otis Redding, um, who, you know, gave her her most iconic hit. Um, so so it, it does seem that loss fuels during this time. It seems like uh, perhaps she gets away from pain in certain ways uh, afterwards. Yeah, and that it's not long after King Curtis's death that she records what's widely acknowledged as her greatest album, Amazing Grace, which is a big departure from the Atlantic stuff. It's a gospel album. It's a straight-up gospel album. It's not R&B. It's not pop. It's not jazz. It's gospel, gospel. She uh, allies with the Reverend James Cleveland, somebody she had known for a long time. He had also been a protege of her father, one of the great second-generation or gospel leaders. I mean, the 50s are the kind of the golden age of gospel. And Reverend Chase Cleveland is one of the people who carried the torch into the 60s and 70s. And she teams up with him, but brings that King Curtis band. She's got Bernard Purdy, uh, Chuck Rainey on bass this time, Cornell Dupree on guitar. Uh, and she's also shed herself of Ted White. And her brother Cecil has taken over her management, which is this great alliance. And, and it's nice to read this part of the book and and just it's a warm loving family and, and these are all talented bright people and as much as aretha is prickly and difficult yeah. even even with her sisters you know um I mean, especially with her yes especially you know she's there's descriptions of throwing down at the dinner table over all kinds of fighting over men fighting over songs yeah. uh fighting over record deals but cecil seems like somebody who's just a good person and a great ally for her and a very competent bright person and um you know, it's just amazing the way a really strong family like this, it's kind of like the Gordys at Motown, the way that whole family yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, teamed up, you know. And so there's this tradition of strong Ameri African-American families, and, you know, the Franklins are no exception. And, and this Amazing Grace album ends up being one of her best-selling albums and the best-selling gospel album of all time, and just an unfettered triumph. And yet yeah, they, they try to do a movie of it, and... Sidney Pollock is directing and didn't know how to sync the film with the sound so that the movie didn't come out, you know, for decades. By the time we had the technology to fix it, Aretha didn't want the movie to come out. So it couldn't come out until she passes. It's kind of a mess, but it's I, a happy ending now. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I remember that. I remember a few years ago before she passed away. Uh, it was it was ready. It was in the can. It was just about to, you know go on all the festival circuits and uh and she just like slapped it down like no this is not happening i you know it's it, we're all just living in aretha franklin's world so i don't know why <laughs> but she yeah I, um but it wasn't long after after she passed that even though it was was against her wishes um uh it did come out 
And even though it was against our wishes, it's incredible. And it only serves to in, enhance our legacy to see this wonderful, uh, this wonderful thing uh, happen on on the screen. Yeah, Amazing Grace is a fantastic album. There, I don't know if she really, from a, a singing standpoint, I don't know if she has any bad albums. I haven't heard any. But if uh, if you really want to know just how good of a singer she is. Not There are other aspects of her artistry that I think are underrated, but just as a pure singer, oh man, you're just not going to get much better than Amazing Grace. And it, it's it's been really influential too. I think um, Mick Jagger was, was there for the one, yeah, one of the sessions while he was doing sessions for uh, for um, Exile on Main Street, and uh, I I never I, I listened to the end of Amazing Grace, the song that she does, and and uh, there's a riff that she does, and I I thought to myself, where have I heard that riff before? It's the <laughs> same thing that Freddie Mercury does at the end of Somebody to Love. And I thought to myself, he was listening, even he was listening to Amazing Grace. He's one of the one million people that bought that album. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, people are picking her pockets right and left. She's dropping these seeds and, and trees, mighty trees are sprouting from, you know, everywhere she goes. And that that working with, with James Cleveland, who's a huge figure in gospel music, uh, I think had to have really helped and bringing in the King Curtis rhythm section that she'd been working with yeah. gets that cross-pollination that, that's so exciting, but it's a gospel album. I mean, there's so many gospel influence songs, particularly from the Aretha Franklin era, but you know, this is the era of Aretha Franklin and, and, you know, Elton John, Leon Russell, the Beatles are doing, let it be. Everybody's doing gospel chord changes. Exile Main Street's got a ton, Temple and Dice, yeah. all these gospel influence things but you can really hear the difference between gospel and R&B that's gospel infused. When you listen to Amazing Grace, the song structures are very different. It's just a very different experience, totally different vibe. And yeah, you can't you just get the album, listen to it, watch the movie. Um, you know, it's, it's just a, an absolute treasure. And then, you know, eventually the Atlantic head of steam kind of just fades. Like she, she puts out many good albums. They stopped, they slow down on their sales before they start weakening. Like she's putting out great, great albums. They're just not selling as much. And being Aretha Franklin, she wants to stay on top. She realizes that she and Wexler have kind of played out their string. She works with Quincy Jones on a pretty interesting album, but you know, this isn't off the wall. This, the magic isn't quite there no. uh, between Quincy and her. She does an album with Curtis Mayfield sparkle that is really good, but isn't quite in sync with the disco era that's dominant. And then, you know, people, you know, this is a woman who who passed on uh, Son of a Preacher Man that made Dusty Springfield's uh, legacy. Yeah. You know, she, Aretha later comes back and does it, but, you know, but she passes on Chuck Jackson songs that start Natalie Cole's careers. Oh. She, she passes on the Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards songs that make Diana Ross a disco queen. I'm talking about I'm coming out. I mean, she passed on I'm coming out, you know, she passed, <laughs> on, she passed on upside down. She, yeah. And she passed on, um, or 
somehow she she was it was in the works for her to be uh, produced by Barry Gibb, and uh, oh. and that didn't happen. And not long after that, her somehow arch nemesis Barbara Streisand <laughs> got got that production instead and had a big hit with uh, the Guilty album. Absolutely. And I, you know, I did an episode on the Bee Gees and I had slept on Barry Gibbs' importance as a producer, mostly because I was around during that whole Dolly Parton, Kenny Rogers, Lionel Richie, Barry Gibb era and hated it at the time. <laughs> but looking back, I have to acknowledge that was a huge thing, that that was when pop figured out how to function in a post-rock and roll world. And yeah, Aretha and Barry, Barry Gibb could have done, could have, would have, should have done some great things. But let's hear one last song, and this is this is kind of an exceptional uh, number that she did on the Grammys in the 90s when Lucio Pavarotti came up sick and could not do Nessun Dorma by uh, Puccini. And Aretha steps up and sings this opera number live on the Grammys. Here's Aretha Franklin tackling opera. And that was Aretha Franklin doing Puccini's Nessun Dorma live on the Grammys in the late 1990s. And that's one of those things like I'm not it's I'm not the biggest opera fan. I, I, I don't quite understand it. I'm beginning to appreciate more and more of it. And it's obviously great music beloved by people all around the world. But this is just one of those things like the fact that she pulled this off on live TV. It was very much like the um, sort of performances you would see on the Simon Cowell reality singing shows uh, uh, five, six, seven years after this. And it's one of those things where you're obviously seeing something, you don't think the person can pull it off, and it's obviously a feat. It's like watching her do this, even if you're not a music fan, you can tell this is a tightrope act. This is incredible that she's going to pull this off. Oh, my God, you know? And uh, just one of the great moments from her later career. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely a moment where, I, I, I think if you're if you were an Aretha Franklin fan at the time, it it probably just confirmed things that you already knew. <laughs> like, yeah, like yeah, of course, of course she can do this. Like, this is what we mean when we say she's one of the greatest singers, uh, you know, of the 20th century. Uh, yeah, to the you know English speaking uh, singers. Um, this is this is this is just what it is. I, I I think that you know opera is just here here in in our society. It's up in this this rarefied air. Um, but the the things that she was doing there are things that she's done. She had done on so many records at that point, at least you know. Uh, yeah. You know, pitch wise. Um, but it, it was a moment and she, it was such a great moment for her. She, she just really lays it on thick about that. And from these roots, because yeah. she's like a person that, you know, she's been at this point hailed one of the greatest singers of all time, you know, for 20, 30 years, 
but she's always trying to find another way to say that to you. <laughs> Absolutely. Sometimes maybe to a detriment, you know, sometimes, yeah. you know, she could be accused of, of over singing more than a time or two, but kind of like, uh, I'm just, uh, I'm thinking of Michael Jordan right now. And it's like, everybody was <laughs> watching the last dance last, last year. And the, the lengths that, that these people go to to let you know how dominant they are uh, is is incredible, and that was that was her moment. She yeah, uh, and, she and, was waiting for that. And reading the respect story, you find out she'd actually been working on that song. It was a coincidence that she had been, but she'd been working on that song. It's not like she just walked in and looked at the sheet music and did it. She knew the material very well and had been working on it for a while. I think there was a key change maybe that she had to deal with. She was singing it lower uh, in Pavarotti's register. So still amazing, but um, not maybe quite as amazing as it looked. But, and we're going to kind of glide over the whole Arista era, but she spent you know, from the late 70s, she leaves Atlantic and signs with Clive Davis's Arista label. And, you know, Clive Davis, uh, at some point I'll do an episode on him. There's there's a whole documentary on him. But, you know, this was a decision on her part to go for the, the pop ring, to stay current. And he hooked her up with people, you know, Arif Martin that she'd already worked with at Atlantic, but Luther Vandross. And she had uh, some pretty solid hits at the time. Um, uh, and, and then... Um, Narada Michael Walden uh, got her with Freeway of Love, which was a big summer hit in the in the mid '80s. Mm-hmm. You know, so people who wanted her to be Sarah Vaughn, and including you know people like David Ritz and me, sometimes you know, why didn't she just go out there and do these jazz concerts? Or at one point, she was signed to to play Mahalia Jackson at a, on a Broadway play, and her fear of flying and her unwillingness to take the two day drive to New York kill that whole thing at the cost of tens of thousands of dollars to her after she was sued after signing the contracts. You know, and again, it's one of those things like, oh, woulda, coulda, shoulda, and and you know, Aretha could have given us so much more. But it's like, man, be happy with what we got. You know, she has left us this incredible legacy of wonderful music. And it's fun to think about the things that she could have done. Um and it's also kind of sad that towards the end of her life, you know, her her siblings there was a gunfire that took a lot of people she loved away, but cancer just ate her family yeah. up. Her brother Cecil died young. Carolyn died young. Irma ultimately dies of it. She dies of it. And there's definitely a feeling in her later years of the walls kind of closing in. And, and you know, she, she stayed closer to home. She didn't travel. She didn't tour. Um, but she always had a close family. Uh, and I think, just lived a wonderful life, and it's um, been really fun talking about it with you, Brooks. Any any final thoughts on Aretha and her legacy? Well, I mean, she's uh, we we are living in a world that you know is partially created by people like Aretha Franklin. Um, she's she's just a towering figure, and had always meant to be. There's something that. Everyone in the gospel community understood about her from the time, you know, she was a little child. And then it was something that, you know, everybody in the jazz community knew during her her Columbia time that, you know, this is this is a true talent. And then she goes to Atlantic, has these R&B hits and the world knows. Um, and, it, you know, it. 
if you're going to argue that she's not one of the top singers of of the 20th century, you got you you have a hard argument to make. <laughs> um, and and until the day she died, her very last um, record that that she put out, I think were were all covers. Uh, the, something uh, something to the effect of Aretha Franklin sings the diva classics. Yep. And you know this, it still drove her. Even she probably passed away maybe two years later. But even at that point, she had, she had, you know wanted to she wanted to be better than Barbara Streisand. She wanted to be better than Whitney Houston. She wanted to be better than Gladys Knight. On this album, she sings the hell out of an Adele song, and it's, it's like it never <laughs> stopped. It yep. never stopped, and and it's you know there there are some. She had a huge ego, but there's also something very entertaining and wondrous about about her ego, and it's just not that way for every every musician that uh that has made their mark um, yeah. there's a lack of self-consciousness to aretha that is just incredible she kept you know the secret supposedly of being creative is keeping your part of your child like essence and she she seems to have kept that her whole life at the cost of being a big pain in the ass to deal with and, and not <laughs> always being uh realistic and and everything else but yeah brooks this has been a, a treat loved this discussion uh we've talked about david ritz's excellent books respect the life of aretha franklin and Aretha from these roots that he co-wrote with Aretha. And so Brooks, look forward to having you back and we're gonna tackle Etta James next time. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks a lot, Nick. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes back Joel Selvin to discuss the dark soul of Burt Burns, Twist and Shout, and Brill Building. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Edward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. The Premier League soccer season is heating up. Turn to Betting Weekly English Premier League on the Bet Rivers Network for the best bets and analysis for this week's features. Subscribe to Betting Weekly Premier League today wherever you get your podcast. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love Betting Weekly Game Bet Match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 